1: Hi, Rebecca.
2: Hi, John.
1: And hello, listeners. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items podcast, bringing you analysis based on my morning newsletter, News Items.
2: It's Wednesday, April 28th. We'll start with two important science and tech headlines, and then we'll get into those news items. John, what do you want to talk about today?
1: Well, U.S. agencies are asserting themselves ahead of the WHO's next investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. I'll also talk about the latest News Corp headlines. They've dropped plans to launch a Fox News-style channel in the UK. What do you got going?
2: Well, we're gonna talk about the emerging market for block cheddar cheese futures. It's a new and emerging market and hasn't been a lot of excitement there up to now, but it's been seeing a lot of action recently. That's a fun story. After that, we will go to your interview with Juan Enriquez about why it's actually very hard to keep a country together.
1: All right, let's get to our science and tech headlines.
2: Okay, first, John, we're going to turn again to India, home to a devastating wave of COVID-19. A journalist in Mumbai writes for Stat that makeshift funeral pyres are burning day and night. Modeling by researchers at the University of Washington suggests new daily cases number in the millions, as we discussed yesterday. And a variant of the virus, which first appeared in India in October, has been found in 19 other countries, including the U.S., As with many variants, scientists worry that this one could be more contagious.
1: It's back to the race between the vaccines and the variants, and clearly the variants are winning in India. Terrible. Is there any good news in the science and tech headlines?
2: We have a bright spot. Researchers have found a new way to collect tiny fragments of plastic that pollute the world's waters using bacteria. These microbes glom together and create a sticky biofilm, which can be used as a net to catch and sink microplastics to the bottom of the water. The Guardian reports the research is preliminary, and based on a lab-controlled experiment— But there's definitely a need for progress here. Plastic pollution is a major problem. The stuff goes from our clothes and grocery bags into waterways, into aquatic species, and right back into our food chain. Plastic has even shown up in lettuce and apples. The team at Hong Kong PolyU shared its research at the Microbiology Society's annual conference.
1: Well, at least that's good news. Sure. Let's get to the news items.
2: All right, so we've talked about the WHO's investigation into the origins of COVID-19 before.
1: Yes. If you haven't heard our interview with journalist Chris Eichum, who's working on a documentary about this, go back and find it in our feed. It's, it's really interesting.
2: Indeed. Well, the WHO is about to start the next phase of its investigation, and the U.S. wants to play a bigger role this time around. State Department officials say experts from eight federal agencies are submitting recommendations for how the WHO should proceed. John, can you tell us what the Biden administration hopes to achieve?
1: You know, the most important thing is to find out the origin of COVID-19. That's like job one. The WHO's investigation to date has been marred by its inability to interview scientists and researchers in China. By an enormous delay, almost 15, I think 16 months between the outbreak and when the WHO team was allowed into China to talk to the folks at the Wuhan lab. And there's a sneaking and growing suspicion that the virus did not come from a bat or from frozen food or the various other narratives that have been put forth by the Chinese government but rather that it might have been a man-made situation, that the Wuhan lab is partnered with the People's Liberation Army and that there may have been research there going on that led to an accident that led then to the outbreak. The United States intelligence agencies are keen on the lab leak theory. And so they're pressing the WHO to gather more information than has been produced to date that addresses that possibility. But it used to be that the lab leak theory was dismissed as sort of uh, crazy conspiracy talk. But as time has gone on, the intelligence agencies have become increasingly convinced that that's in fact what happened.
2: Is there increasing interest in this alternate lab leak theory from other countries?
1: Everybody's interested, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody wants the U.S. to take the lead because we have the greatest intelligence resources, right? We have Mm -hmm. the best, quote, spying agencies, end quote. But, you know, we have to find out. And so the first report came back, the Secretary of State of the United States, Mr. Blinken, Said basically, uh, no, thank you, get back and do some more work. Uh-huh. So that's where we're at. And the U.S. intelligence agencies in the State Department and the Defense Department, everybody
2: yeah.
1: is very anxious to get to the bottom of this. If it is a lab leak, you know, the question is was it scientific research into viruses or was it military research into a bioweapon? That's the. Is there
2: a serious difference between, I mean, of those. Perhaps one and the same? or
1: They could be. Yeah. They could be interchangeable. But the focus has shifted from the PRC, if you will, from uh-huh. the government of China to the PLA, the wow. military of China from the point of view of U.S. intelligence. And so this story will be with us for a good long time.
2: Oh, no kidding. Well, I mean, in the journal piece that you uh, linked to this morning, the U.S. is keen to shape and to put its mark on this next phase of the investigation. Is that feasible for the U.S.? Is that a realistic goal for the U.S.? Or has this, is this virus too far gone to really uh, you know, reshape the narrative in a way that the U.S. would find satisfactory?
1: I think the hope is that if you cast a wide enough net and you force the WHO to cast a wide enough net, that there'll be data that collected that will be helpful to understanding what happened. It's not like this round you're going to find out the truth. That's not going to happen. But further investigation may yield data points and information that will prove helpful to what the United States knows. Perhaps by other sources, let's put it that way.
2: Yeah, well, news items will keep us posted.
1: We never waver from the coronavirus story.
2: News items never sleeps.
1: Let's get on to the next news item.
2: So, John, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange added futures and options on large blocks of American cheddar cheese. It's called a new kind of block trade. And now interest in these cheese derivatives is picking up.
1: Am I making a bet on the state of Wisconsin, or am I making a bet on lots of pizzerias, or what you am know, I doing You know, it's there?
2: it's interesting. You know, all of the above, perhaps all of the above. <laughs> so, what a cheese future allows you to do is lock in a price for a twenty thousand pound block of cheese for delivery at a specific month on the calendar. I mean, this market has primarily been inhabited, shall we say, by cheese producers. I mean, this is not a speculator's market up to now. I think the FT mentioned uh, in their reporting today that. Open interest in the block cheddar contract has increased significantly lately, and there's currently open interest equivalent to 64 million pounds of block cheddar contracts in existence. So that's been, even though this particular contract is new-ish, interest in positioning in these contracts has increased quite a bit lately. Uh, The cheddar cheese contract will lock in a price for a 20,000-pound block of cheese for delivery at a specific month on the calendar.
1: Why cheddar?
2: So it's cheddar because... Cheddar is an alternative to the processed Velveeta-style cheeses. So, ah, okay. Consumer demand for authentic, fresh-tasting cheese. There you go. What's happening in the cheese market is actually is actually very interesting because it's not the easy narrative that you know America's opening up again, so we're all going to go to restaurants and therefore cheese is going to be more expensive. I mean, there are many there are many dynamics at play here, even during lockdown. Places like pizzerias, hamburger takeout places have continued to see quite brisk business from people who are having food for delivery or for takeout during the lock-in as opposed to going to a restaurant and sitting down any company that uses cheese as an input is naturally short the cheese market, so is going to want to lock in a favorable price for future months if they think that prices are going to move higher. There is speculation in the market that that will be the case due to lower milk production outlooks as a result of higher feed costs, which feed being, you know, grain costs being an input for dairy farmers, uh, as well as some weather challenges, et cetera, that affect production.
1: Does anyone ever take Delivery of a 20,000-pound block of cheese?
2: I bet. I mean, not not me. I haven't done it yet. Then you've got not only a commodity, a consumable commodity, but also a roadside attraction, <laughs> which should not be discounted.
1: That's fantastic. Really Isn't it?
2: <laughs> so never ignore the entry of speculators into a commodity market because it can create some real shockwaves. All right, moving on. John, you know more about the inner workings of Fox News than anyone I know. So what do you make of this decision by News Corp to scuttle plans for a Fox News-style channel in the UK?
1: Well, I think they saw an opportunity, the same opportunity they saw in the US in the 90s, which was that news programming in the UK, generally speaking, tilts left And so there was a wide open sort of market segment on the right that would be attracted to essentially right wing talk. And, you know, they had the model, which was Fox News. But, you know, people forget that Fox News was not profitable for, I think, the first nine or 10 years of its existence.
2: So do you think this says more about the commercial prospects of right-leaning media in the UK or just how financially stretched, let's say, the Fox News empire is? Does it say more about the market or the investor?
1: So this is a project inside of News Corp. Okay, News Corp stock has underperformed, I guess you would say, since its inception, which I think was five years ago. The regulatory environment was not great. Ofcom, which is the regulator in Great Britain, been hostile to Murdoch interests before. But I think the big thing was that just the expenditure seemed vast. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know this for a fact, but I think that News Corp is so confused about how it's going to grow Mm -hmm. that the idea of betting that much money on one thing probably gave them pause.
2: Talk about the marketplace that exists as you see it.
1: You know, it's a big market. I mean, Brexit won, and the Tories swept the last election. And in the main, British media are either center-left or liberal, right? Even one of the Murdoch papers, The Times of London, is, you would say, a liberal paper. And the BBC and ITV and Sky News don't provide right-wing talk. So the game plan is the same as it was for Fox News in the U.S. And is there an audience, you know, big enough to sustain a network like that? Absolutely.
2: All right. John, so for today's interview, you spoke to Juan Enriquez about his 2005 book, The Untied States of America. Why are his ideas still so resonant today?
1: Untied States was a remarkably prescient book. It was published in 2005. The subhead was Polarization, Fracturing, and Our Future, and he basically nailed it almost 20 years ago. Uh, so I thought it'd be a good idea to have him on. We're also going to have him on to talk about two of his other books. One's called Evolving Ourselves. The other is called Right Wrong. We'll get to those when we get to them, but they should be very, very interesting interviews as well.
2: This is going to be great. So we'll take a quick break, and then we'll hear your conversation with Juan Enriquez.
1: Welcome to the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. Our guest today is Juan Enriquez. Juan is a managing director at Excel Venture Management. He's a business leader, author, and academic, recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on the economic and political impacts of life sciences. He was the founding director of Harvard Business School's Life Sciences Project and then founded Bioteconomy. He's an active investor in early stage private companies in the biotechnology and information sciences sectors. Juan, thank you very much for being here today.
3: It's a great pleasure, John.
1: Juan, in 2005, you described three forces basically that were tearing the country apart one, debt, two, speculation, and three, I guess you'd call it religious uh, fervor. Where do things stand in 2021?
3: When you look at history, Countries fall apart all the time. So three-quarters of the flags, borders, and anthems at the UN today did not exist a few decades ago. And when you look at it in that context, it's actually harder to keep a country together than it is to tear it apart. The centripetal forces on countries are such that you've the number of countries in Europe, and you're not done yet. You may eventually have Corsica, and the Basques, and the Catalans, and the Southern Finns, and the Walloons, and the Northern Italians, and it just goes on and on. And so when you look at the world today, it's become easier and easier to split countries because you have this overarching international system. So you can join a trading regime, you can join a monetary regime, you can be protected by international human rights, and the cost of sovereignty has come way down. What's really dangerous about where we are in 2021 is that you've got a very polarized electorate. You spend several billion dollars every electoral cycle convincing 50.1% of the population that they should never, ever, ever associate with the others. You have an absolutely enormous debt overhang with debt just piling on no longer in the billions but in the trillions which could lead to a substantial financial crisis and stress and then you've got a notion that the core project of the nation of what it means to be british of what it means to be american of what it means to be french is being questioned by more and more groups internally and in the measure that they tear down common myths and the measure that they tear down common heroes deservedly or not it again rips at that social fabric at that common myth of why we are one, why e pluribus unum.
1: Do you think that the polarization in our politics, meaning U.S. politics, is manageable? Will we be able to stitch it back together, or the forces, the centrifugal forces such that it makes necessary some kind of new arrangement? Are are we past the point of no return, I guess is the question?
3: So when I have the privilege of lecturing occasionally at West Point, one of the first questions I like to ask the cadets is, how many stars will be in the U.S. flag in 50 years? And to a cadet who is willing to give his or her life for the flag on the shoulder, that is a gut punch, right? That is a question that they are not normally asked. And the room gets very quiet. And then you ask a follow-up question, which is, Tell me exactly how many presidents of the United States have been buried under the exact same flag they were born under. And the answer is exactly zero. There has never been a president of the United States buried under the same number of stars he was born under. And until there's a president who was born after 1959 that dies with no change in the number of states, that will continue to be true. So you now have debates as to whether D.C. should become a state, whether Puerto Rico should become a state, whether California should split, whether Texas should split, and and it just goes on and on. So you could easily see changes in the core U.S. flag in the number of states. But I think the question you're asking is a question of geography, and is it feasible that the United States could become the untied states, as is happening in so many places in Europe? I think we haven't decided that yet. I think people underestimate the United States. I think the United States time and again bounces back after entering periods that in historical terms we look at and we say, what in the world were we thinking?
1: I'm sort of obsessed with the various secession movements, Texas, California, the Eastern Oregon, Idaho, all of that. Do you pay attention to that? Do you take that seriously or is that just sort of blowing off steam?
3: You know, I think the last political period has been incredibly damaging to the American fabric for a whole series of reasons, right? I mean, it's it's easy to blame one individual or blame one side, but there's plenty of blame to go around. That doesn't mean that individuals aren't responsible for throwing gasoline on the fire, but the fire was lit and you have a great deal of outrage and grievance and anger on a lot of sides of the political spectrum, and they play out and they manifest in different ways. So let's do one thing. Let's take 2% of politicians or protesters or angry folk who are really willing to do violence and truly evil, and let's just say, okay, yes, there are people who march in Charlottesville. There are people who you know burn down buildings. Let's just take that 2%, and let's just put them aside, and let's talk about the other 98%. I start from the position that you know, 98% of the people in this country are decent human beings. They may completely disagree with me politically. They may have a very different set of values and education. But they're people who get up every morning and try and do their job. And they try and take care of their kids. And they try and take care of their parents. And they try to be respected by their peers. You know, If you ended up with a car broken on a highway, almost everybody would help you. And almost everybody, if they got to know you, for a few minutes, would say, hey, come over and have a beer or come over and have a sandwich. You know, I'll let you make a phone call. We keep forgetting that there's that fundamental underlying human decency in half of the country that we're not voting with, that we're not talking to, that we're not respecting. And so what's happened is we've allowed the 1% or 2% who are truly angry and evil to polarize us to the extent where you would never ever want to talk to the other side because those people over there are baby killers or those people over there are pedophiles or those people over here are rednecks or those people over here are ignorant, you know, destroyers of X, Y, Z group. And people are more complicated than that, right? People are brought up with different values. And when you allow a country to divide in the way that we divide, when we sort our suburbs, our cities, so that they become more and more segregated by political opinion. When it is easier to marry in the United States today across racial lines or religious lines than it is across political lines, then you know you've got a fundamental problem. And if you don't address that fundamental problem, then you will split the nation.
1: What role do you think modern business and finance play in the untying of the United States?
3: Business is in a very strange position because if you look at the Edelman polls, Business has actually moved up in the last couple of years in terms of more ethical and more able to do things. So government has moved down. NGOs have moved down. NGOs are seen as more ethical than business, but less able to execute. Government is seen as less able and less ethical. And so what's ended up happening is that CEOs are now expected to represent the societal values of their customers. And again, business is polarized. So you don't see a whole lot of Starbucks in the same mall as, call it the dollar store or Cracker Barrel. They almost tend to be opposite ends of the spectrum. And business has been reasonably cautious about crossing party lines overtly. The problem is that when it does, as did Nike with the Kaepernick thing, and it is wildly successful for them. The incentive to play the same polarization game of we're your team and we're fighting against the other team increases. And this is going to put a squeeze on banks. It's going to put a squeeze on financial institutions. It's going to put a squeeze on CEOs because, you know, if you're not with me, you're against me in these polarized times.
1: Well, Juan, it was great to talk to you. Thank you for doing the show. We are going to have you back. In the meantime, thanks again.
3: Great to see you, John. Thank you.
2: All right, John, this was a this was a fascinating and absolutely chilling interview. I mean, I think it very clearly communicates that the United States is sitting on a knife's edge and when it comes to this, you know, American project, we got to shape it up.
1: Juan is a really interesting guy. And, you know, one of the themes of news items is a world in disarray and a world coming apart is, you know, one of the subjects that Juan talks about at TED conferences and such. For more on the world in disarray, <laughs> uh, I want you to go to newsitems.substack.com
2: and subscribe. You got to go for the premium subscription.
1: Yeah, the annual, not the not the monthly <laughs> or the free. And what about your website, Rebecca?
2: Well, you know we don't cover the cheddar market as yet, but no. you never know. Uh, for news on the global market of things, go to investableuniverse.com thematic investment topics and real assets. Right. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Billy Gardella, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too.